Okay, I've been, as I said, really looking forward to sharing with you guys a particular story in Luke. I love preaching mostly for my own sake because I get to dissect a passage. And there's an interesting passage in Luke chapter 7 where it actually pits two stories and kind of puts them together. And they really, if you just kind of cursorily look at them, they don't seem to have a lot going together. But these, I'm hoping we're going to be able to glean what what Jesus wants for us, and actually who Jesus is from these two stories. And one of them is um, about a funeral. And it's a really, really fast funeral. It's, it's abruptly interrupted. And so that's what, uh, this is called a, a funeral buyer, which would be part of the customs in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And so as I was preparing for this talk, I started researching you know, different traditions and customs in, in ancient times. And I kind of, you know, you just get on the internet and you just start you know, spinning and spinning. And so I start looking at some of the things that we do today and the differences in tradition for funerals and, and dealing with death in the different parts of the country. And the most interesting one I found, I don't know if this is going to catch on. I'm from a car culture from Southern California, so we'll see. But there's a funeral home in Atlanta. You guys know about viewing, right? I don't know how popular viewing is here, but a lot of times you'll go to a funeral and or maybe before the funeral, they'll have a viewing time when you can walk by and they'll have a, an open casket and you can kind of pay respects to the deceased. This funeral parlor in Atlanta has installed five big windows in the side of their building that are for drive up. So you actually drive up and they have the casket sitting there behind the window because, you know, you're busy. You, know, you got to stop, you got to pick up the kids and you got to get your hamburger. And then you drive up and you can pay your respects there. So I don't know if that's going to be a thing or not, but um, that would be interesting if that was the, the viewing. And then I was thinking back to um, an interesting thing, experience I had. I used to be a photographer, and when I was about 15, I started working for a photographer in Los Angeles. And a woman came in and hired us to photograph her deceased husband. And I was 15, and I thought, yeah, that, that sounds right. And uh, I didn't know any difference, but I guess it, that's real common in, in uh, other areas, particularly in the East. So we were used to doing portraits, so we just kind of loaded up all the gear, and we went down to this funeral home and, you know, lit the, the deceased. And, you know, part of it went a lot faster because you didn't have to worry about, you know, blinking or expression or anything like that. <laughs> so you just kind of light it, and, and uh, we took the picture and thought we did a really good job. And... Um, came back, and, and the woman came back in a, a couple weeks later and uh, was very, very displeased with the, with the photographs. And uh, so the studio manager sat down with her, and you know, she bought a big print, the studio manager just sat down and said, well, you know, what, what's the issue? And she goes, well, he looks dead. <laughs> and the studio manager was a lot more diplomatic than I was, so she handled it really well, but I thought, well, what, you know, what can you, what can you do with that one? Um, so the traditions for funerals span quite, quite a, a range. So the one today, I think, will be helpful to us in seeing how Palestine dealt with them 2,000 years ago. So we're going to read from Luke 7, chapter 1. I'm sorry, Luke, Luke 7, verse 1. If you have a Bible, um, you know, you can turn it on or open it. If you don't have a Bible... Um, at the information table, we actually give you Bibles, so we'd love for you to take one away. Tonight, that's why they're there. So let's read the word of the Lord. After he'd finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, 
he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers unto me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who'd been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding countryside. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us today, that you would um, give us the ears to hear what you would want us to hear. I lift up those who are followers of you, that you could use this time to help us be better at doing the things that please you and that, that you wish us to do. And Lord, I lift up those who don't know you yet, that you would open their ears to who you are and give them a vision, compel them to understand who you are. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with me, that I wouldn't get in the way, that you would just give me the words. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it starts out that Jesus comes in. He had just finished teaching what in Luke is known as the Sermon on the Plain. So it's a very, very, it's a monumental time in Jesus' ministry. He's He's instructed all kinds of things that are really earth-shattering. And he comes into Capernaum. Capernaum is Jesus' adoptive hometown and kind of the base of his ministry. So that's the setting here. And he comes upon a centurion. Now, a centurion would be a, a soldier of the Roman army. He would be similar in our present-day army to a warrant officer in that he would, have, he would have come in as a private and risen through the ranks. So he would have been battle-scarred and, and a proven warrior. And then... He, he would be in command of a hundred men, so would be similar to a captain in our present-day military. He would be paid about a hundred to two hundred times more than a normal soldier would be. So this guy has authority and command. He would, so he'd be wealthy, and he would be some nationality other than Hebrew. Okay, not necessarily a natural-born Roman citizen, but he would be some other nationality other than Hebrew. He may have been a convert to some form of Judaism, or he may have just taken the Roman tradition of adhering to some of the teachings of the people that they were conquering at the time. Um, the historian Polybus says that centurions must not be so much as seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. They ought to be able, they ought not to be over anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their post. 
So this is a tough warrior. This would be an intimidating guy in command of a serious, serious force. Yet he refers to his slave, to his servant, with a term that's usually reserved for sons or daughters. So he loves this servant, has great love for the servant. This would be very, very um, unusual because in the time, Greco-Roman times, you know, slaves were treated as property. Aristotle actually referred to a slave as a living tool. So the fact that this this officer, this army officer, referred to his slave with a term reserved for children would be very telling. Verse 3 says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, I believe that each verse in the Bible is there for a purpose. What does this tell us? These six words, when the centurion heard about Jesus, somebody evangelized to the centurion, right? Somebody went and told him about Jesus. Would you? Would I, as a Jew, go to an officer in the oppressive army that's ruling my people? Would I witness to them? Would I tell them about Jesus? That would be pretty scary. And anti-Semitism is nothing new, right? The, the majority of people who weren't Jews had no love for the Jews. The majority of the Roman army would have no love for the Jews. And so the majority of the Jews would have no love for the army. Would you witness to them? I would think he would be scary, Right? This would be a scary dude that I would like to just, you know, just kind of make sure that I don't get on his radar. So I was thinking, many times we underestimate the power of the gospel. We underestimate the power of Jesus to cross lines, to cross ethnic lines and social economic lines and lines of unbelief. The gospel can take care of all those things. We need not be afraid to share who Jesus is to us. And I was thinking, who today would be a modern-day centurion, who would you be unlikely to share your faith with? So I'm gonna ha- I got a slide here. Would you guys be likely to share your faith with guys that look like that? Or somebody wearing a burqa? Or a Sikh? Or, you know, whoever? A gang member? I figure there's at least three reasons why this guy wouldn't respond to who Jesus was, right? One is he's wealthy, and I think there's no sin in being wealthy, but many times that distracts us from the things of God. We start to rely on ourselves. So wealth can be, can be a stumbling block. He's an important soldier of an occupying army, right? You just think, I don't have time for you people. And he's not a Hebrew. So there's a lot of reasons why people shouldn't have witnessed to him. There's a lot of reasons why they just should have passed by and not told him about Jesus, except for one, that he was ripe. He was ready to hear the gospel. He was ready to start putting his faith in Christ. We drop down. He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. This is a great example of somebody having a great reputation with somebody out of their immediate culture, right? The centurion had this wonderful Um, reputation among the Jews to where the Jews would actually speak on his behalf. This is a great example for us to be multicultural, right? To reach out to people that maybe just aren't, they don't look like us, they don't act like us, they don't do the same thing as us, to be in tune for this. And judging by the use of the verb to build, he actually paid for the synagogue himself. It's singular. So he would have done, he would have paid for the entire thing for himself, by himself. And I think it illustrates that he had the love for the truth, that he had love for the word of God, because at the time, that's what synagogues did. 
is they taught the scriptures. So somehow he had some connection. He was a God-fearer on some level. Also, he's an example to us of someone being wealthy and powerful, blessing those around us. That it's not just something that we, that we hold on to tightly, we hold on to it loosely and freely give it as God prompts. I think the Jews probably came to Jesus with some apprehension. You see that they kind of plead their case for him because they're thinking, would he minister to a wealthy man and would he minister to a non-Jew? And Jesus demonstrates, yes, the gospel spans all people, all circumstances. And when Jesus went with them, he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. So this is interesting because just a couple verses earlier, right, he pleads with the elders, the religious people at the time, to go to Jesus and say, please come and heal my servant. And then just a short time later, he sends people out. He goes, no, 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 don't come. So I don't know that if he was, perhaps he was overcome with, with grief because we know that this guy's sick. By the way, Luke was a physician, right? So that we know that this guy's sick. Luke would have known. So he pleads with them to come, and then now he's having these second thoughts. So maybe what's going on in the centurion's mind is he's thinking, I'm not worthy for God to come. You know, imagine if I told you, by the way, God is coming to your house this afternoon. What are you guys going to do? Some of you are going to go and vacuum. I know that. Some of you guys are going to get on Facebook right away. But some of you might think, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy. I don't want God to come to my house. I think the centurion was increasingly convicted of his sinfulness. Now, the centurion was nice and humble and generous, right? We know that. He's nice, he's humble and generous. He has a great reputation among those he is ruling, which is pretty amazing, right? So probably if he's graded against anybody else, he would rate pretty high, right? He's, he's, he's doing it all. But he knows that he is unworthy. He knows that he is not righteous, He knows, just like you and I should know, that we are unrighteous to be in God's presence apart from being washed in the blood of Christ. He knows that he comes to the centurion with nothing. God owes him nothing. One of the marks, I think, of a a genuine disciple of Christ is humility, knowing that we didn't earn grace. Right? It was a gift. It was bestowed upon us without any effort on our parts. We can demand nothing because we deserve nothing. If you were here today, and you're not a follower of Christ, and you happen to come into God's presence, which you will one day, do not say to him, give me what I deserve. Those are the worst words you could ever utter. Because everyone, everyone in this room deserves damnation apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. No matter how great we are, no matter how much, how many times you go to church or your your youth group or your regroup and you give money to things of God and you serve in nonprofits and you're the best neighbor in the world and you help old ladies across the street. It does not matter what you do. You do not deserve anything but damnation. You cannot earn your way to righteousness. It is only through the blood of Christ. But it's understandable that the centurion thinks this way because that was the system in place at the time. That was Judaism at the time. The very difference between the centurion and the teachers of the law, the Jews that he sent to talk to Jesus, was the Jews had no problem being in the presence of Jesus, right? They thought they were, right, were righteous. I'm sure they would have no problem with him coming over to their house. The centurion thinks that his sinfulness is a front to Jesus' holiness because he didn't understand yet the system of grace that Christ was bringing in. 
This is a big deal. This story is a big, big deal. The idea of the Jews to be unworthy in front of Christ never occurs to them. And they have less faith in the centurion because the Jews asked him to actually come to the servant where the centurion said, he doesn't need to come. He just needs to say the word. And I get the feel, don't you, from the centurion that his faith was not conditional. I think that if Jesus said, you know what, I'm, I'd like to come, but I can't come, I can't come right now, you know, that, that centurion wouldn't be shaken. He didn't say, you tell Jesus if he comes and he heals my servant, I'll start to follow him. He didn't do that. It was unconditional. He, he asked him, knowing that he was unworthy in humbleness, to come and heal. And again, he has more faith than the elders did because he knows that Jesus doesn't have to even see the servant to heal him. He has much, much more power than that. He understands who Jesus is in the universe. He knows of Jesus' capabilities and his powers and his place. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, not even in Israel have I seen such faith. Jesus shows us that being religious doesn't give you a lock on faith. Frequently the opposite. It also tells us that faith always, happen, always happens apart from sight. Right? This guy had total faith, never seen Jesus. Jesus isn't going to seal a servant. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus is surprised at the amount of faith that the centurion has. Right? He is amazed at the faith the centurion has. The centurion had less knowledge of Jesus than anyone in this room. The centurion had less knowledge about who Jesus is than anybody in this room, yet he had such amazing faith. Jesus is impressed not only by his faith, but also his humility, his understanding of Jesus' power. The story also tells us an amazing thing about Jesus' humanity, right? Jesus is God, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything, right? God can't be surprised, yet when God came to earth as a man, there's certain limitations that he had over himself. So he got hungry, and he got thirsty, and he got tired, and he got surprised, right? God went through that process so that he can be fully equipped to be our compassionate high priest. So he understands what it is to be a man or woman on earth. And Jesus goes on to, kind of through the back door, notes the lack of faith of those he'd been ministering to this far, right? Up until this time, virtually all the time that Jesus spent was ministering to Jews. And he notes their lack of faith. He knows that they missed the truth despite their privilege of being God's people, right? Of being told for thousands of years this was going to happen. They missed it. God's chosen people who trusted their self-righteousness and their ceremonialism over God's righteousness. And I think that's a great caution for us as followers of Christ. Sometimes we can forget what grace is. It is not earned. Even as good Christians, it is not earned. We are not worthy of grace. Romans 10, 2 and 3 says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. I think that's the temptation for us as followers of Christ is that we discount God's righteousness and start building ours up. 
We start forgetting his and building ours up. I think that's something that we need to do every day is to ask God, fill us with the Holy Spirit, fill us with Jesus. Please help me to remember today what you did for me. Otherwise, we can kind of forget what's going on about our life. And here's a wake-up call for me. Jesus has only been amazed twice in the Bible. It's only mentioned twice that he's amazed. And the other time was at lack of faith. Jesus said to them in Mark 6, 4 through 6, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. I think there is a danger as being a follower of Christ for a period of time that our faith can get diluted, that we kind of take it for granted who God is and what he's done, that we start to become uninspired, that it's habit. That's why asked to be refilled every single day with the power of the Holy Spirit and who Jesus is. Because contrast that scenario where you're perhaps less inspired or not as on fire for Christ as a new believer. Remember sat with a new believer? Like they just decide who Christ is, right? And they just get it. And they're like, this is amazing. What are we doing sitting here? You know, they want to, let's go out. There's somebody down the street that hasn't heard the name of Jesus. Let's go. They don't understand why we're not on fire and running around like crazy, yelling it from the rooftops. I think it's important that we reflect on that and ask God to help us through that, that we don't become complacent in who God is. And when those who'd been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus never lays sight on the servant. He's never met the centurion, yet he bestows grace upon them both. The power comes from expectancy, right? There was no doubt in the centurion's mind that Jesus can do this. That's where the power comes from. That's what we need to remember. This is the end of the first story. This other story comes right up against it in the Bible. And so it's interesting to compare the two. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. Um, Nain's only mentioned once in the Bible. They think they know where it is, which is about a day's walk from Calpurnum. It's just a wide spot in the road. Uh, Mention any town in eastern Washington to to give you an idea what that would look like. Um, But this first verse tells us what happens as people witness Jesus, who he is and what he does, his followers begin to grow, right? As people start talking to him, to people about him, as they start seeing what he does, his followers begin to grow. And as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So there's few things as sad as somebody who outlives a child, right? That is just a tremendous, tremendous burden and grief to, to experience. But this woman's already been to at least one other funeral because her husband's dead. And she's living in a culture where a woman depends upon her livelihood and protection upon the men in her life. So her, her sons and her husband. She doesn't have that anymore. And she's in a society that doesn't have the safety nets that, that ours does. There's no such thing as social security, There's no life insurance. There's no philanthropic organization that's going to come and support her. She is on her own. She is consumed in grief. She's most likely destitute and overcome. 
It goes on. It says, And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. So if you can picture this scene, there would be um, a line, and at the front of the line would be professional mourners. It would be women hired to wail and mourn. And then the next piece would be um, professional musicians to play a funeral dirge. And then there would be the funeral buyer carried by four men, and then it would be followed by the widow and her friends and the town. And the whole town would be out because it was a small town. They understand what has happened. They understand the tragedy, the overwhelming sense of the most sad scene they can imagine. And isn't it telling that this is where our God chooses to reveal himself in divine power, in this hopeless, dark, overcoming grief that's going on? And look how Jesus ministers to this woman, right? He's, he's looking for somebody to minister to, right? So like Jesus, he's going out, right? He's looking to minister. We can really learn from that, that, that he's looking for somebody to minister to, just like he's looking for those of you here today that don't know him. He's after you, I'm telling you, he's after you. Fair warning, he's after you. But we can learn from this, because I think so many times as Christians, if we come upon some sense of, of tragedy or, or loss or struggle that somebody's going to so many times that we kind of step back i think and we say well i don't want to intrude this is a private moment you know and or, I, I don't i don't know the words to say or um you know i i just don't want to make it worse but we have to be bold like jesus we have to go out we we need to get involved i'm convicted by something that happened to me you know how it says in the bible that we are tested by angels sometimes i don't even know if i've told my wife this before all right, listen up. <laughs> when I was about uh, 25, I was uh, ready to make a left-hand turn in a very wide street. I know the street in Southern California. And um, there was an um, island right there. And it was only me. There was nobody in the next. There were two left-turn lanes, and there's about three lanes over here and three lanes over here. And I looked over, and there was a man standing there, bleeding profusely just dripping blood down his sleeve. And it was, it was a nice neighborhood. It, was no, you know, it wasn't a, a gang neighborhood or anything like that. This guy was just bleeding there. And I was a very young Christian, and I looked, and I didn't want to get involved. And I looked straight ahead. I'm ashamed of that. So I turned... And right as I turned, I thought, this is stupid. I've got to help that guy. And I pulled in the gas station. So a span of five seconds, maybe. The gas station was on the corner. And I turned, and he's gone. Now, there were no other cars there. He couldn't have left on his own power. I know that God was testing me to see what I would do. I'm thankful that I went through that test because... It helps me doing other things. But I believe that it's our responsibility as followers of Christ is to look for ways to be Christ to his creation. Jesus was unwilling to back away from that suffering. He knew it was right. We can do the exact same thing by offering service in Christ's name at the minimum. 
Hopefully we offer service and then offer the power of Jesus over death at the same time. We're supposed to give that away. Then he says to her, do not weep. How beautiful that is. Do not weep. Jesus cares about our sorrow. All right, so those people that were in youth ministry when I was in youth ministry, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. It's two words. The reason why they know that is because if we had extra donuts or candy and we walked around and they'd say, can I have one? They said, well, give me a Bible. We'd say, give me a Bible verse. Can't be John 3.16. It can't be uh, John 11.35 because it's Jesus wept. That's a great bar bet, by the way. If you're ever in there and say, hey, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? It's only two, two words. Jesus wept. Now, every verse in the Bible, I believe, is there for a purpose. So what does Jesus wept tell us? You know, if we're a if we're a disciple of Jesus Christ, does that mean we're supposed to cry? No. The story that comes out of is Jesus had three very close friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Lazarus is very sick. So Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, please come quick. Your friend Lazarus, your brother, is really sick. We need you to come. He was several days walk away. And so Jesus does come, but he takes his time. And he takes his time because he knew what he was going to do there. Right? So by the time he gets there, actually, Lazarus is already dead. Jesus knows he's going to go in and he's going to bring Lazarus back to life. But he comes upon the scene. Mary and Martha rush out to him and fall at his feet, weeping. And they say, Lord, you're too late. You're too late. He's gone. And they're just crying. Now, Jesus knows that he is going to go over there and raise Lazarus, right? They've been dead for a few days, right? He knows this, yet he cries. Why would he cry? Because his friends were crying. Because he weeps when we weep. Contrast that with false deities, by the way, you know, that, that crave sacrifice and vengeance. No. We worship a God that feels compassion for sinners who are suffering. Revelation 21, verse 4, tells us what it's going to be like when he restores his creation. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What a God we worship. You know that virtually all of Jesus' miracles were miracles of mercy? What a God we worship. Then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. I tell you what that scene was, that was shock and disbelief. For Jesus to walk over, Jesus, an Orthodox Jew, a rabbi, to touch anything that a dead body touched would make him unclean for days, right? It was to the point in that culture that they would actually mark any area where you might come in contact with the body. So, you know, there'd be white stones around a tomb entrance so you wouldn't come flying around the corner in a hurry and actually run into a funeral and accidentally become unclean. So when this happened, this would be a big deal. Everybody would have stood with their mouth open. They would realize, what is this guy even doing? They never even heard anything like this. But what is he doing? He's demonstrating his compassion for the least powerful person in society, a widow with no sons. Jesus is going to get involved. Isaiah 63.9 says, In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. 
beautiful. What a God we worship. More than that, that's pretty cool. More than that, picture this. I picture this as two armies clashing. Two armies are clashing. This army right here is the army of sorrow and pain and death. Being championed by Satan, by the way. Coming this way. Coming right this way. Jesus is coming with his followers this way. He's the leader of light and life and joy. These two armies crash. The Lion of Judah, right? The Lamb of God is standing up against this. He touches it and he says, Stop! I have overcome you. This is a big deal. This is a precursor to what he is going to do on the cross. I got to think. I was thinking this week. I'm thinking, when did Satan know that he was in trouble? Right? I'm thinking he knew he was in trouble when he tempted Jesus, right? Jesus, 40 days, 40, day, 40 nights, not eating, not drinking. Satan goes out there, hits him really hard, starts quoting verses, you know, showing him views, all kinds of stuff. Jesus reject, rejects him. I'm thinking that, okay, Satan thought, well, this guy's a little bit tougher than I thought he's going to be. And of course we know that when he came upon the empty tomb, he knew the jig was up, right? But this one had to ruin his day, right? This was some time before, right? I got to figure he looked at it and he said, I have underestimated my adversary, right? This had to ruin, I love ruining Satan's day, by the way. That is awesome. Hebrews 2, 14b says that through death he... Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. Amen? And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. All shall rise again who follow the Lord. He tells this man, arise. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you will not grieve like the rest of mankind that has no hope. If you're here and your faith is not in Christ alone, you have no hope. You may think you have hope. You have no hope. There is no effort that will give you hope. What's so cool about this too is Jesus doesn't even need to touch the man. He just speaks. It's really a one-word command. He says, arise. He doesn't even touch them. You know, Elijah and Elijah, they had to lay over bodies and, and uh, lay a staff over them and that kind of stuff. Not Jesus. He just speaks. It's not really surprising. If you look at Psalm 33, 6 through 9, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. The Lord here is not the Lord the Father or the Lord the Holy Spirit. That's the Lord Jesus. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and he stirred firm. Of course, he can say, arise, and that guy gets up. He spoke, and everything happened. He spoke, and creation came into being. We're talking Jesus here. He can do it. And Jesus was not asked to heal the guy, right? He was not asked to, to resuscitate him from the dead. He did it on his own, right? What does that tell us? Faith is not required for God to work. Jesus is going to do what he's going to do to his creation, no matter if people have faith or not. Because guess what? Faith does not save us. Jesus saves us. 
So the dead man sits up and begins to speak. Christ gives him life, and he begins to speak. No doubt at least some of that speech was devoted to Christ, right? At least some of it, you've got to figure he's going to be praising Christ. And you can imagine the widow, right? You could not get her to shut up about Jesus, right? Because she's seen her son come back to life. Right? It's a natural response when Jesus resurrects you to talk about him. He's offered each of us spiritual life, right? He's rescued us from eternal damnation. If you put your faith in Christ, that's where you're at. We should be compelled to share our faith. We shouldn't be able to open our lips without faith. And Jesus gives him to his mom. So what does this tell us? Jesus gives him to his mom. I think it tells us that we're not all called to be pastors or missionaries or Christian authors or, or whatever. We are called to minister where God puts us. Because I'm thinking that it would be very easy for Jesus to, to take this guy as a trophy around with him, right? I don't think like God a lot. I think like a man. I would think, well, I'm taking him with me, right? I'm going to go and do my speaking engagement, and you know, about halfway through, I'm going to say, ladies and gentlemen, I want to bring out the widow's son. I raised him a couple months ago. I'd like him to say a few words, and he talked for a little while, and then go back. That'd be pretty powerful, right? You guys would pay to see that. But he doesn't. Why? Because he leaves the son there because that's where he is needed to minister to his mom and his town. 1 Corinthians 17, I'm sorry, 7, 17a says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Each of us are called to where God wants us to be, to doing amazing work, right? It should be that anytime you hire a Christian, it is like a stellar testimony to what kind of work you're going to get out of them. Because no matter what you do, if you're digging a ditch or pouring soda or writing code, it should be the best that anybody could possibly get out of somebody. Plus, he leaves you where he puts you so you can be a witness for him because God's going to put you in with people naturally that you're going to relate to in some way, right? So whether you're in the boardroom or the lunchroom or the playground or, you know, the factory floor, that's where God wants you to be. That's where he wants you to be working for him and sharing Jesus with others. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all that surrounding country. Again, here we see, once people see who Jesus is, they speak of him with passion. Once they see what he is capable of, who he actually is, they speak of him with passion. They cannot be restrained. Are we restrained? Do you hesitate and tell somebody what Jesus means to you for some reason? I don't, I don't know. We should not be able to be restrained. I think sometimes we can be desensitized to the things of God, particularly living in an affluent society. Again, being blessed with money is not a sin. But if you look at the places where the church grows quickest, it's in some of the poorest areas of the world. Now, why is that? Are poor people more spiritual? No. I think poor people are less easily distracted by the things of our efforts. People should see Jesus through Scripture, but I think more so they should see Jesus through us. And by the way, 
I have some tools to help you do that. These seem silly, but people are coming to Redemption Church because of this sign. Okay? I've had a couple conversations in my neighborhood just, be, whoops, just because of that sign. <laughs> this sign, much harder to use. This sign can work. Uh, these are available at the information table. This is a pretty benign way to start conversations with people, right? Have this up and they'll ask you about it. This is another thing. Um, it's a hand sanitizer. Like We're, we're targeting particularly you know, moms with kids, but uh, fastidious men can use these as well. Um, it's just a great way to start the conversation about God. right? It's just one more tool for us to use. So please take advantage of those things. Okay, so why are these stories put together? Okay. What, what, what can we learn from the fact that they're together? One is, Jesus ministers to both the powerful and the weak. Right? He is not drawn toward affluence over poverty or, or the reverse. Jesus loves those who come from a system of belief as well as those who don't know him yet. Jesus also recognizes and appreciates faith but will minister to his creation as he sees fit. He may minister to us when asked, and when we don't ask him. Look at everybody in this story Jesus gives grace to, right? The centurion gets grace. The servant gets grace. The Jewish leaders get grace. Those who witness the healing get grace, right? Then we go to the, to the funeral. The people in the funeral procession have grace, right? They get to see this amazing thing and who Jesus is. The son gets grace. The mom gets grace. The town gets grace because we have a, a widow who's provided for now. Jesus gives grace all over the place. Now, being brought back to life by the power of Jesus, literally reanimated, is amazing, but it is no less a miracle than being redeemed from damnation by faith in Christ. So everybody here where that's happened to, you are a walking miracle. What a celebration. I always lament that we don't have we don't change our birthdays to when we accept christ you know i think we should just get rid of the i didn't have anything to do with with that other birthday right that was just kind of random happened but this is where god came and drew me to him right that's the day to celebrate that's a miracle and the response to being saved by the blood of christ should be that you want to tell other people about it it should be evangelism people tell me well i don't have the gift of evangelism says there are spiritual gifts. Not everybody gets all the gifts. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, what if I didn't have the gift of tithing? Right? Would I not have to give money to God? What if I didn't have the gift of hospitality? Could I tidy it off my lawn? Right? There are certain things that are a natural response to saving faith in Christ, and one of them is telling others about him whether it's putting a, a yard sign up, whether it's just going up in somebody and praying with them, whatever it is, it should be a natural response to what God has done for us. We want to tell people that when Christ comes and restores his creation, heaven on earth, there will be no funeral buyer, no coffin, no sorrow, no sickness, nor death, nor moaning. Nothing. No mourning at all. Because there will be no sin, there will be no locks or counselors, or weapons, or attorneys, or police officers, or AA programs, gone. The sinful earth will be gone. The long funeral procession that started with Adam is done. There will be no more tears. Jesus defeated Satan 
and death on the cross. That's what happened. Jesus brings life and vitality and joy, never-ending joy. We can trust him with every aspect of our life and every aspect of our death. That's who he is. If you haven't done that yet, and you're here today, you are sitting in your coffin. You're without hope. You are sitting in your coffin, and someday, we don't know when, somebody's going to close the lid. You're without hope. The only hope you have, there's no hope in your efforts. The only hope you have in the, is in the blood of Christ. The great news is he freely offers it to you. He's looking for you. Everyone here is worshiping something. If you're not worshiping Jesus, the creator of the universe, you're worshiping something. You're worshiping your money or your family or your position or yourself. Now, I don't know why you would want to worship a lesser being when you have the ability to worship the creator of the universe. And let me encourage you to stop that today. Give your life to Christ today. Now, this morning, I'm not offering you compassion or healing or reconciliation or resurrection. But I'm offering you Jesus and he'll give you all those things and more. He's ready. Are you ready? He speaks to you now with one word. Arise. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Thank you for loving us so, so much that you made a way for us to become righteous and to become worthy to be in your presence. And Lord, I lift those up here today that have not accepted that yet, that are trying, they're trying so hard, Lord, to be good. They're trying so hard to work their way into your favor, but they can't do it, Lord. Please help them understand what that is. Please, please, Lord, compel them to you. And I lift up the rest of us, Lord, those who have chosen to follow you, that you'd be with us this week, that we would look for those, those messy situations, those sorrowful situations, those situations that we feel inadequate and overcome and not ready, that we would be bold and minister to those in your name. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.